Ho, 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 hello, and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and on this, the last episode of 2020, we look back at podcasts past to pluck out some books for your reading future. But first, for Christmas present, we chat with New York Times bestselling author Jenny Colgan about her return to the beautiful, tiny, remote island of Muir for her book Christmas at the Island Hotel, a heartwarming new novel celebrating the season and Scotland. Jenny Colgan, how and where are you, as is the traditional way of greeting these days now that we're all in a mad big ether? Where actually are you? Uh, hi, Peggy. I am in Edinburgh. It's getting close to Christmas time. And after years, of course, of everyone complaining about the Edinburgh Christmas uh, markets taking over everything, now we really miss them. <laughs> oh, I bet. Is it weird? Is Edinburgh really quiet and weird? Well, I tell you what, we live, we, we spend most of our time in Fife and then we live in Edinburgh during term time in the city. And uh, actually, since we moved here, it's been pretty much kind of all a bit lockdowny. So I think what's going to be really weird is when people start coming back and we're like, we can't park. Oh, I'm getting really sniffy about it. So, but yeah, it is a, it's a, it's a little odd this time. And, uh, August was really weird, yeah. So you've yet to encounter living among the slow tourist walk. So that's a big treat that's coming. You've kicked us off already by mentioning the C word. That is Christmas. I wanted to ask you, first of all, Jenny, the, the new book being about Christmas. What does Christmas mean to you? Have you? Are you a Christmas fan and have you always been? I am. Yes, I am a big Christmas fan and I like a big Christmas and... I because I I've lived in various different places and I I spent Christmas in 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 the Netherlands in France and New Zealand and you know kind of all over the place and really nobody goes quite as crazy for Christmas as as the British do <laughs> in my experience and and so certainly when I was away I would kind of miss the traditional elements and I think that's when I started to write about Christmas and British Christmases and British traditions so um yeah no I am a big a big fan I'm I'm a bit super I'm a bit over we're a bit over organized this year actually. I think just because there's less to do and less people. So we're like, oh, well, there's no point in ordering a big turkey. We'll just buy a wee normal turkey. <laughs> Get one of the wee ones that they're breeding, yeah, apparently. I mean, pudding, two puddings? No! <laughs> oh, goodness, yeah, this will, be a, this will be a strange Christmas. All right, tell, tell us a wee bit, if you would, about some of the Christmases, Christmas traditions around the world. That's interesting because it is different everywhere, isn't it? Well, yeah, in New Zealand, of course, it's the middle of the summer. So uh, everybody eats turkey anyway and listens to the Queen's speech, but then just goes to the beach. That's a kind of nice way of doing it. In France, it's all about the oysters. It's the big on oysters. And of course, you can't buy oysters in advance very much. So really, Christmas Eve is a lot of getting hold of your oysters. And then there's a lot of church. And you, you eat um, capel, which is kind of little chicken. And they sell them with the heads on, which always, I never go over it. I can <laughs> I never plucked up the courage to just buy a big bird and chop off its head, unfortunately. Oh, no. So, yes, yeah, so that that was kind of there. Uh, the Netherlands, it's uh, Christmas Day is about December the 4th. <laughs> so, and you get sweets and a shoe. That's what you get. Uh, St. Nicholas Day, yes. Uh, yes, and, um, and, and he, he brings you sweets if you've been good. And he has very controversial kind of helpers called the Swarty Peten, and I think they're finally getting rid of them. Oh. Um, so, yeah, it is kind of, it's interesting. I like the way that however you and your family do Christmas is the only way it's legally allowed to be done. Correct, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. It's like the first time you spend Christmas with somebody, you know, with another half or at somebody else's yeah, house is a very curious. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they, they have presents on Christmas Eve or, you know, or just absolutely, or they all kind of sit around and don't open them and, it's it's, it's <laughs> yeah 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 you're still there after the queen's speech with with not a present open that's the worst okay. um, 
<laughs> Why do people know? I don't know. So tell us then about this brilliant new book that came out in October, Christmas at the Island Hotel. Yeah, just tell us a bit about where that book came from, if you would. Uh, well, I kind of, my, my daughter is, is 11 and she's very fond of kind of those Christmas films where kind of, you know, you get a prince in disguise and, and, and a kind of innocent person. And, and, and she just loves those and she wanted me to write one of those. Uh, so my daughter really loves kind of, you know, uh, person swap kind of Christmas uh, movies. And I thought, well, it might be rather fun. And I've been tra- I had been traveling back when we were traveling a lot in Scandinavia. And I was up in Norway last Christmas, and oh my goodness, Norway at Christmas is so lovely. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to have a young Norwegian chap arriving in Scotland and kind of trying to work for a living when he's not very good at it. And and that's that's a kind of story that I think might be kind of really fun to do. And I did have an awful lot of fun writing. I also write about an island, a kind of fictional kind of mix of Butte and Shetland uh, in a series called the Muir uh, series. And I wanted to set something there because people are quite invested in those characters and want to know how things are doing. Particularly, there's um, a Syrian refugee who's the town's doctor uh, called Saif. And I've literally spent four years putting him through absolute hell. So <laughs> if people want to catch up at Christmas time and see how everybody's doing, then they can. Yeah, I, I love that idea. Like when you have got, you know, a, a, the readership that you have who just love your books, quite obviously, you know, and, and that sort of a responsibility to them. You said they're now about catching up and about them, you know, revisiting the island or whatever. Does that feel like a responsibility? to you um only sometimes i wrote a series and i wrote i was going to write six in a series they're called oh they've rebranded them but i there it's a school series it's a, a series about a boarding school told from the perspective of one of the teachers and we were going to do six and then we did them and they weren't massive sellers and i did two and we kind of then i went and had a baby and then we kind of lost the thread a little bit and so i did two novels the second of which ha- ended on a cliffhanger and they didn't, they weren't big sellers, but they were very consistent and they had a fan base that was very strong. They're quite like Mallory Towers for grown-ups. Oh, but, lovely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so we just started, we just kept getting these letters from people going, look, I'm terribly old. Could you tell me what happens to Maggie and Stephen before, you know, our, <laughs> Maggie and David? <laughs> um, or, or, you know, I'm going in for an operation and I think it's only fair that I should know, you know, or has the author died? You can use the pseudonym. So uh, somebody said, I've been checking the obituaries and I can't see whether Jane Beeson is alive or dead. Could you let me know? Because I just, you know, I just, so I felt a bit of a responsibility. So 10 years after the second class book, that's what we call it, the class series, uh, I wrote a third, which came out last year. And I started it literally the second uh, the, the second book had finished. But of course, 10 years ago, there was no Facebook, there was no Instagram, there was no Snapchat. You know, teenage girls were very, very different. And so I had to kind of do some hasty catching up. And also one, one of my characters in the original series, which kind of started in about 2008, uh, I'm always looking for interesting names. And I plucked I thought was an interesting surname from a court case for a girl who I wanted, uh, I just wanted it to be a certain kind of person. And the interesting name I gave her was Kardashian. Oh, <laughs> no way, before the lawyer who'd been in a court case. And that I think that's the only thing we changed. And they're about to come out in the US as well. I think the only thing we changed in the editions uh, was that Simone Kardashian had to change the name. It was inappropriate in the extreme uh, so so yeah but certainly with the class books i felt a little bit of responsibility um so yeah yes yes to a certain extent mm. i mean did you did you let those people the, the older people going into hospital and things did you let them know it's okay they don't die or you know how did you respond 
Uh, yeah, no, we uh, we just kind of we just kind of announced that we were gonna. It eventually got that there were enough that we thought we better just do this. <laughs> they still do, they still don't sell very well. <laughs> it's basically a newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, you mentioned Norway there, which is a sort of gonna awkwardly sort of segue into the idea, the Danish idea, I believe, of hygge, Uh That your books, I think have an abundance to this and they're often sort of winter warmers and ha- happy and a lot of your readers describe them as you know magical and irresistible which is all just must be lovely to, to hear as a writer what to your mind both as a writer but maybe also as a reader are the perfect um ingredients in creating that atmosphere for your readers i'm kind of i'm not very one of the reasons i don't write as much for doctor who is i'm not very good at doing really terrible things to characters which is a problem in Doctor Who because you have to kill people all the time and, and, and have kind of ghastly monsters and stuff and I was terrible at monsters. I'm good at the hanging about in the TARDIS bits. <laughs> so I kind of have a general, you know, even people that start off as kind of total baddies, I always end up feeling slightly sorry for them and, and finding a little bit of redemption for them. I just feel there's enough kind of horrible things in the world. And so in my books, you tend to suffer quite mild jeopardy, really. <laughs> Nothing to, uh, unless you're poor Saif, my lovely, lovely Syrian refugee. So I think there's an element of that. I'm very, I like to write about uh, community. I like to write about different age groups. So I write a lot of children and a, and a lot of older people and about how your life intersects uh, with those rather than being a kind of, uh, certainly when I was a writer in my 20s, then there's, you know, it, my books are only people with 20-somethings because, of course, when you're young, that's all you can see. You don't really see older people or smaller people or, or whatever so yeah in in france the uh, so here the books are known as what are they known as kind of uplit i suppose and in america they're kind of cozy reads or something along those lines but in france the term is a uh, du livre de doudou and a doudou is a word that doesn't really translate very well in English. A doudou is the toy that a child has, but it's not just a toy. It's the very specific toy, you know, the, the, the bear or the blanket or whatever the child takes to bed and won't be parted from. That's your doudou. It's a very useful mm. one. We don't have mm. one here in the UK, which is a shame. Anyway, and I like that. Livre de doudou, the, livre, the, the book that you take to bed and you keep close by for comfort. That's my favourite I love that. This is a whole new mind-blowing concept to me that, of course, genres in different countries will have different... You, they'll, they'll not just... But it's not just uplit translated into French. You know, it's it's got a whole different sort of set of... Yeah, concepts. Oh, and, wow. and also in countries where that culture, like you spoke about Denmark, but in, in countries where that culture, particularly in the wintertime, is very strong, like in Scandinavia, I'm, I'm just a novelist. I'm just a, you know, fairly straightforward, realistic novelist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did. I did want to ask you about um, Jenny T. Colgan and um, you know writing Doctor Who and, and science fiction and so on. I mean, what do I want to ask you about? That? I guess I just wonder wh- how you balance the two and how you see. Do you see yourself as sort of wearing a different hat when you sit down to write f- for Doctor Who, say, as opposed to um, you know one of the class books? No, I mean just what we were saying there about genre and how it's different in different countries. Genre isn't something authors do. Genre is something that. Is, is put upon you by whoever is, is kind of dealing with you or whoever's publishing you or, or, or placing you in a bookshop. So, you know, I'm telling a story, um, really. And even, you know, when I write children's or when I write the school books or, or when I write for Doctor Who or when I write for science fiction, uh, I'm just telling the story that I want to tell. Or at the moment, I'm writing a story which has certain ghostly elements. That's my story, you know, and, and genre 
doesn't really exist and it's, it's really someone else's job to I, I promise not to put you through my genre doesn't exist um lecture but um it, it's 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 really somebody else's is job to put that on me as far as I'm concerned the process is exactly the same and what is the process for you then Jenny how does it how does the book begin and where you know bet where do you write best etc I'm really interested in process because I'm myself just a reader to be honest so it is a bit of a kind of magical mysterious art to me I what's it like for you well I'm a coffee shop writer and I um so I like to be somewhere out the house and, and kind of bland and and with sandwiches and and it's quite the, the good thing about writing in coffee shops is there's a real limit to how long you can stay there you know politely particularly at the moment where people are having to queue up in the cold um so it gets you kind of motivated and in a kind of work head I have a word limit which uh, for me is about 2,500 words a day, depending on where I am in my cycle, uh, which if you're a journalist doesn't sound like much. And if you're a <laughs> literary novelist, sounds impossible, darling. So, you know, everybody's different. Uh, and then, and also I'm a really good typist. My parents bought me a typewriter for Christmas when I was about 10 and it was the best, and, I, and a typewriting course to go with it. And it was the best thing ever, uh, really the best gift I've ever had. So I can type more or less much you know uh, as fast as I could speak or, or really think and then I just I don't know watch a movie in my head and type it out I guess yeah oh, I love that idea well, you, you sorry you've just also reminded me I got a typewriter for my uh, Christmas when I was 10 and it didn't work and we had to take it we had to take it back to a shop which I found really weird because surely it had to go back to Santa um and uh, and so look you know that isn't that in, you know sort of straight um, apocryphal I wonder if I'd have become a writer if I'd Got a, got a typewriter that had worked and <laughs> probably not um the rest of the podcast is just going to be 40 minutes of peggy looking into the distance in total silence <laughs> <laughs> tell me tell me a bit more about the the following a movie in your head though that's because you you I, I i have read that you you cast your characters in your head s- sort of thing what's that how do you get it out like what's the what's the that process like yeah, I tend to have a kind of physical idea of the men, uh, really, particularly less so the women. Yeah, I, I have been informed, it's not pleasant, but I've been informed by that you can occasionally catch me making kind of speaking faces, which I know cartoonists do a lot and artists do a lot when they're drawing people as they make the expression. So if you've ever seen a video of, of uh, people animating for Disney, they're always looking in a mirror and making these ridiculous faces at themselves. But I think I do it too, which is kind of slightly awkward of just when you're running things in your head. And then also when you start, but, you know, I tend to throw a lot of people at it and see who sticks, who I like, who's interesting, who turns out to have more to say than I expected, who's sympathetic, who isn't. And I like the process of a blank page. Some some writers really like editing. They really like refining things. And I I don't like editing. It's just basically correcting bad stuff. Um, <laughs> so that's no fun. But the kind of day-to-day process of writing a nifty scene and, and just, you know, that... I, that that's the bit I like getting stuff on paper and if anybody is listening that's trying to uh, write or is working on something just now getting on paper is the only important job getting good stuff on paper that's the editing job getting thousands and thousands of words on paper is the first draft job doesn't matter what they're like you can fix them later yeah you can't yeah. can't edit a blank page as they say there isn't any other writing advice that's worth a damn really just get it down and then see if it can be fixed and if it can be fixed that's fantastic and if it can't, um, then 
go write a sitcom for ITV. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Strong advice. How, how has lockdown affected you then in terms of, as, as you mentioned, not being able to go to cafes and that being a part of the process? What Has it changed the way you go about it? Um, yeah, I mean, it did to start with when you can leave the house. But here where we are uh, in Scotland, cafes have been open really since about May. So Oh gosh, the first I was so basic. The first time I saw Starbucks open, I was so excited. <laughs> I went and ordered a frappuccino that literally the world's least uh, interesting drink. So, uh, so we've had that. But before then, yeah, I was just upstairs in bed, which is where I normally edit. And it was um, my husband, bless him, he set up a desk and stuff in the greenhouse, but um, it didn't. It didn't take. And then I wrote a whole book about lockdown because I thought we thought it was going to be quite short and it'd be quite fun to have something. And then we had to scrap the whole thing in August because it was just dragging on so long. It was so miserable and we just had to chuck it. People might want to read about it. Uh, we salvaged some characters and uh, we salvaged a location. So, you know, if you've got characters in the location, you can again make things work. But apart from that, yeah, we had to... God, it was it was horrible. Yeah. So from August to October, I had to start over from scratch because we just it was it just it just became increasingly apparent at the beginning. Everyone's like, oh yeah, that'd be great, you know, assuming that we'd all be marching out by the autumn time. And then as it just got worse and worse, we just had to say no, it's not going to, you know, maybe in five years' time. In fact, I'm sure in five years' time we'll get an absolute rash of of, of virus novels. But I I think so. I think you're right. I think there will be a lot of um, lockdown, lockdown literature, probably. I mean, what have you yourself then been, what's been taking your mind off the current situation, culturally speaking, books, films? Oh, I played the piano like a fiend. That's all I did. Got on the piano and, and plus I, I, just before lockdown, I'd sat my grade five piano exam. And then last month I sat my grade seven. So I skipped two grades and just Incredible. played the piano. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. You're, make, you're putting me to shame. I've really not done very much of anything of practical worth during lockdown. It's been such a funny time, hasn't it? But that's a good one. Well, I, had, well, I mean, I had well, the kids. I was very lucky because I had my other half at home for most of it. And then, then he had to go to Italy and got stuck there. But that's another story. So my husband's at home and also my kids aren't very little. So they could pretty much follow. And then the big useful thing is we had some ropey old computers around the place. So they didn't have to share so, you know, they were able to get on with schoolwork and I had Andrew there. So actually, we were so lucky, really, through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, now that the book is in the world, um, was it weird writing about, or living in Christmas imaginatively when it's not Christmas? Oh, no, I wrote this last Christmas. I always write Christmas. The book I was writing over the summer was something completely different. So I always write Christmas books during the Christmas period. So I'm writing next year's right now. Ah. <laughs> is that a rule you set yourself or it's just not possible otherwise? I mean, I'm sure it's possible. It's very tricky, um, really. Just, you know, there's kind of, you, you do forget the music and the songs and the smells of the things and, you know, different kind of, you know, even my daughter coming in just now and, you know, fretting if she's got enough cards for everyone in her class. And, you know, there's lots of little details about what Christmas is authentically actually like that it really helps to write it at the time. So, no, I write Christmas at Christmas I, I know some people don't but I yes I have to that answers that thing because I thought of you kind of sitting in March writing a Christmas book and thinking that must be quite just an, an um, yeah uh, dissonance I suppose well, a Christmas album a very good Christmas album and she had to go and record it in like July <laughs> I think I think that was quite that must have been quite peculiar 
Yeah, absolutely strange business. Um, just coming to an end then, Jenny, what have you been working on then during this period? You mentioned the lockdown book and we can, we've can we heard about that, but what, what then is next for you? Um, well, coming up next, it's called Sunrise. I think it's just called Sunrise. We were looking for something optimistic to come out in the spring when hopefully everything's starting to open up again and look good. And it's fun enough. I played so much piano and I thought, oh, I'm just going to write about piano. I'm just going to write about what it's like to, to, um, and I thought, well, it's not very interesting to write about the mechanics of playing the piano myself. It's just a hobby. But would it be interesting if you moved in next door to a piano teacher who was unbelievably noisy? And I decided that, yes, that would be interesting. And it's kind of funny and a bit, a bit daft. And um, so that's coming out. In, and it has lots of food and music and yeah it's nice it's a good proper traditional rom-com it's coming out I think in May and then I'm working on a book set in Edinburgh for next Christmas I've never set a book in Edinburgh before so that's quite exciting mm. does it help to set books where you're not well normally I don't set books in real places because people just people that live in those places if they get one tiny thing wrong they all go absolutely crazy <laughs> crazy <laughs> So I have a, a a village in the Highlands which is based on somewhere real but is called somewhere else. And like I, the, my island series, which is a kind of amalgam of a couple of the islands, but again, isn't anywhere real. But Edinburgh, I think, is big enough to take it. So, um, you know, if it, if it, if it's really kind of super big, but no, normally I work in or, or like I, I write about um, a place in Cornwall, which again is completely fictional, because if you write about little towns that are real, you're just asking for trouble. There you go. That's the best piece of professional advice I can offer. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did wonder. I thought. I wonder why that's not called the name of an island that you would know. But that is exactly why. Okay. Very interesting. Um, just finally, then, Denny, what do you hope to find in the bookwise uh, in the Christmas stocking? What books ha- have you been reading, and what what would you like to read over the festive period? Um, what have I been? I'm reading the new Kathleen Haney. I'm terrible. I can't wait. If something comes out and I want to read it, then I'm just going to read it. So the new Kathleen Haney, which is coming out next year, I am reading and it's excellent. I'm reading Georgette Hare because I've never read her. And, I had, and people kept wanging on, on and on about how great she was. And I was like, really? It doesn't seem like my kind of thing. And I'm kind of reading a Christmas party. And I, do you know what? It's not 100% my kind of thing, but it's very readable. And then I'm about to, the New Yorker just published its 20 top books of the year. And I had a look and they all look amazing. And I've downloaded about half of them. So, but you can't, I don't, I am very, you can't buy me a book. If it's, if I think, you know, one, it's insulting because it implies I haven't heard of it because otherwise I'd already bought it and read it. So one, you're insulting how much I read. So, you know, don't buy writer's books. And, um, you know, and two, if it's kind of, you know, that's <laughs> what an ungrateful person I am but yeah oh god you know, people that read a lot is a minefield and two if it's not very good or if it's pure well that reflects badly on you and three there's almost nothing more likely uh, to make someone not read a book than someone give them a book and say you should read this <laughs> it's like, oh, you're going to love it mm. <laughs> under the tree we have uh, an herbally album a Bino and um, oh, I bought my husband Jamie Godley's book because he thinks she's the fu- he's not British and he thinks she's the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> oh, great. Is it even Christmas if there's not an Willie or a Bryn's album in sight, I would say? Oh, they've started to amalgamate now, so you get them both. Oh, oh, that's new. 
Oh, great. I think finally, finally, and, and a slightly easier question then, best Christmas movie. I know you like movies. What what should people be watching? I have a real fondness for Scrooged. I think my mother used to love it. She loved Bill Murray. She She's not with us now. And she just thought he was the funniest thing in the world. And it is a funny film. It's scary and it's funny. And it's got that real 80s kind of bad yuppie vibe to it. So mm, I know I that vibe. Yeah. yeah, I like Scrooged at Christmas. Thank you to Jenny Colgan for chatting to us. What a huge treat. Christmas at the Island Hotel is out now and available at all good independent bookshops. If you're still looking for other Christmas gift ideas for your nearest and dearest, or let's face it, for yourself because it's 2020 and you deserve it, then you'll find plenty to consider among the brilliant writers who have joined us on the podcast this year. For the fiction lover in your life, we have Booker-winning Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, a novel in the words of Chair of Booker Judges Margaret Busby that can make you cry and make you laugh, a daring, frightening and life-changing novel. Scabby Queen by Kirsten Innes is a big, ambitious brawl of a book and something to look forward to very much next month is Luck and Booth by Jenny Fagan. Denise Miner, meanwhile, is at the absolute top of her not-inconsiderable game with the heart-wrenching The Less Dead. Poetry fans will love two collections from two brilliant emerging voices, Modern Die by Shetland's Roseanne Watt and Let Me Tell You This by Nadine Ayasha Jassat. For short stories, each one like a fine malt in the words of Janice Galloway, seek out that old country music by maestro Kevin Barry and postcard stories by Northern Ireland's magical realist Jan Carson. Or find a terrific slew of both in Extra Teeth, a magazine full of new writing and words with bite. Issue 3 is on its way early next year. For a hymn to the great outdoors, Stephen Rutt's gorgeous wintering, Polly Pular's Our Richness of Martins, and Dan Richards' Outpost will take you on a wild journey to the ends of the earth. While Edward Parnell's award-winning Ghostland will transport you on a tour of a haunted country. If you're planning a festive Looney Duke, Taking the Plunge, the healing power of wild swimming for mind, body and soul is a must read. For that word fan in your life, try Susie Dent's Word Perfect, a brilliant linguistic almanac full of unforgettable stories, fascinating facts and surprising etymologies. And what better for your favourite bibliophile than seven kinds of people you find in bookshops? The latest offering of virtuosic venting from Wigtown's very own Sean Bithell. That was just the tip of the iceberg of our year in books and only a handful of the wonderful people who joined us on the podcast this year to share their life and work with us. So thank you so much to all of them. Don't forget, you can catch up with all these episodes on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Spotify and Google Podcasts or wherever it is that you find your podcasts. We will be there. A little audio stocking filler between the turkey and the Christmas pudding. And thank you, of course, to you all for listening. It's been a happy highlight in this funny old year to have you join us on this podcast adventure. We wish you the very merriest festivities that can be mustered and look forward very much to connecting with you again in 2021. Take very good care of yourselves. Bye-bye for now.